This week on Physio Foundations, I'm talking to Matt King, Dr. Matt King from La Trobe University about his research and clinical interests. We're going to talk about femoroacetabular impingement syndrome, biomechanics, and many other exciting things. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Physio Foundations podcast for another week. This is a podcast about the knowledge and skills that provide the foundation of expert clinical practice. And this week, Susanna and I are co-hosting. So hi, Susanna. Hello, Luke. And we've got Matt King on the line. So Dr. Matthew King from La Trobe University and the LASM, or is it the LASM or the LASM group at La Trobe. Matt, how are you going? Um, well, thanks, Luke. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. Good to see you, uh, Susanna. Good to see you. So um, Matt's uh, got a lot to offer. He's got a lot of um, clinical and research interests. And I thought rather than me doing my normal big bio introduction, telling everyone all about you, um, why don't we start with a bit of general information about who you are, Matt? So um, can you give the listeners a bit of a brief introduction about your background and current interests and why we're talking to you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as Luke said, my name is Matt. I'm a uh, physiotherapist and have been for the last 10 years. Um, and I am currently uh, employed at the Latrobe Sport and Exercise Medicine Research Centre, or LASM, as it's uh, commonly referred to, um, as well as a lecturer at the Discipline of Physio at Latrobe as well. And I currently split my time up between those two roles, looking at research relating to biomechanics, um, hip and uh, uh, hip and knee OA, and also do um, some large scale data management um, for the centre as well. Uh, in the past, I've worked clinically across community sport um, as well as premier grade rugby, and I've also uh, worked as a consultant to the Transport Accident Commission um, on their clinical panel as well. So that's kind of me in a nutshell. So Susanna, whenever you want to jump in with a question and. A curly question. You're going to ask Matt some curly questions today. Please jump in. I, I wanted to ask about if perhaps if we go back to your PhD, Matt, and your PhD invested, investigated biomechanics in athletes with hip-related pain. So what got you started in research and in your PhD? And perhaps you can give us a bit of a summary of your research and your findings. Yeah, so, um, so what got me um, interested in research actually was as an undergrad student, um, being a participant in someone else's research, um, Dr. Adam Semkew, who is also at the Trobe, who actually subsequently became one of my supervisors. Um, and I've, uh, from a biomechanics perspective, I'm, I'm very much not a, a words person. Um, if anyone, you know, that works with me will attest to that. I'm very much about uh, numbers come from, you know, enjoyed physics and maths at, at high school. Um, so that's what really drew me to, um, to um, biomechanics specifically. And I remember I, I caught up with um, Tanya Pizarro, who's a, a physio lecturer and works at Mill Park. Um, one day right before Layson was about to start, we were having coffee and uh, we've had multiple conversations in the past throughout me starting to do a PhD. Um, and her exact comments to me were, the Trobe's going to start a new research centre. Um, you either jump on the bus now or you don't do your PhD. I've arranged for you to meet Kay, the new director tomorrow. Don't be late. And that, I suppose, is how my relationship with Kay Crosley and my research career um, started. Uh, so I'm very glad I went to that meeting the next day. I was very scared because I kind of knew who Kay was and I did some Googling when I got home and then I was even more scared after that. But she's not a scary person in real life. <laughs> 
It's a good story. So, so you started your PhD and then tell us a bit more about what you did. So, yep. so biomechanics um, focus and yeah. Biomechanics focus. So I worked on a, an enhanced MRC funded project that Kay got a grant for and her team um, looking at the biomechanical risk factors um, and other risk factors associated with the progression from femoral tabular impingement syndrome towards hip OA. And I worked on the biomechanics component of this um, predominantly a baseline. So I was looking at um, the biomechanical factors associated with um, an individual's presentation with, with hip pain um, and how that can inform assessment um, guidelines and treatment strategies further down the track. So what were your hypotheses at before you started? Like what, what were uh, you thinking you'd find? That's a good question. Um, I think uh, my hypothesis prior to leading into the project um, was predominantly around, uh, I suppose, issues are always going to present themselves in larger amounts of hip flexion and, and larger amounts of, of um of tasks, so you're jumping, you're hopping, you change your direction, those sorts of things. Um, whereas being a younger cohort, we wouldn't really see too many issues from, let's say, a walking perspective or, or those simple things. Um, that was what I thought going into it. Um, that's certainly not what I thought coming out of it, uh, but they were my initial thoughts rolling forward. Fantastic. And and um, I guess did it did it change though? How did it change then? So what were your thoughts afterwards? Well, we deliberately because of that, we deliberately picked to look at a low, um, a low level task and a high impact task. So uh, walking, because um, it's you know relatively commonly investigated, um, but also single leg drop jam drop landings um, as well, high impact, high magnitude single leg. Um, but we actually, as we started to peel into things. Um, we were looking at a younger cohort that was still playing football, um, so soccer or AFL. Um, what we found was that the, the differences that were present were actually more prevalent in those lower um, lower impact tasks like walking. Um, there actually weren't too many differences in the higher impact tasks, um, the, the single leg drop jump type um, movements. Um, and we you know, put some hypotheses as to why this may be the case. You know, maybe these particular individuals that we were studying because they were still playing sport, um, they were still participating two to three times a week. Maybe they weren't deconditioned. Maybe they weren't under um, underloaded from, you know, having time loss injuries. So they're still able to perform those higher impact tasks um, with relative ease. And that that's particularly useful for clinicians that are working in teams um, because, Obviously, when you're working with teams, you want your players to continue training as much as possible, and even if they're modified. So um, that's really, really useful for those because the nice thing about that project is there wasn't necessarily an intervention in it. You're, you've got a cohort that are going about their everyday thing, which mm -hmm. is, you know, in clinic, that's what you've, you've come across. You know, people come in um, and they're still playing their sport Hopefully. Um, Hopefully, and, yeah. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, th this is really interesting. So um, I guess as, as a clinician, because I still work um, as a clinician as well as doing my PhD, I know I'm jumping the gun a little bit, but <laughs> what are the sorts of things that we should be looking at with these sorts of people when they come in um, into the clinic? Like, because we obviously 
always want to dive in to uh, the jumping, the hopping, the running and all of that sort of stuff. Um, but what is it about the walking that we should be looking at? Because I don't think um, many of us maybe look to that straight away with the, the sports person. Mm -hmm. So the, the more common presentation and the, the interesting thing um, I'm going to, I suppose, give a bit of a prelude here. The interesting thing is the, the cohort the, that we investigated were still playing sport, and that's we really tried to, to hone in on that because there's a big gap in the biomech literature in hip pain around that. Usually they're pre-surgical cohorts. Um, so I was to summarise quickly the, the sport group, they presented during walking to have similar impairments of those individuals that were having surgery or had hip OA. The only difference was they were of a smaller magnitude. Um, the, the impairments that they were presenting with were smaller. And one of the more common ones that pops up with hip pain is people start to reduce how much extension they go into when they walk. Because um, um, it's predominantly uncomfortable, it changes the forces in and around the hip. Um, and it's hypothesised that the individual people that have hip pain do this to decrease the pressure um, or decrease the contact force in the front part of their hip. Now, we're not too sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing, and we're continually working on that exact question um, in the cohort at the minute. But I think um, for the clinicians, especially the young clinicians listening to this, I'm like, uh, my, my advice would be don't negate the simple low-level tasks. If you're taking 10,000 steps a day, whereas you may only hop and jump you know, 400 times of training, three high low. I don't know how many times I hop. Uh, I was a ruckman, so I was doing a lot of jumping when I was playing footy. Um, don't negate those small tasks. And when you're setting your rehab programs up, say you, you're looking to increase return to running and those higher impact tasks, um, keep this in the back of your mind. So one of um, one of my most favourite things to do for my hip pain patients, especially when they come in, and come in initially and maybe they have stopped playing sport um, and they're a little bit deconditioned, when I look to return them to run, I love... Um, bleacher running or stair running because you're getting um, and what I get them to do is I get them to run up the stairs and they've got to turn around and ideally get in a lift and come back down to the bottom or slowly walk back down and go back up um, because you're getting um, small bouts of a higher impact task but you're not challenging the hip too much by getting it to come out into too much extension and make it uncomfortable and the other thing with that as well um, is there's this interplay between your ankle and your hip. And if you increase the amount of work and power at your ankle during a task, you actually start to decrease it at your hip as well. Um, now, again, we don't know if that's good or bad, but from a progression from return to run, like bleacher running is really, 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 uh, I find it to be very, very useful in returning these people to sport. Uh, but there are some important caveats. Number one, they can't miss a step. It's very deliberately little short steps. Number two, they're not allowed to run back down the stairs. This is a great example of where you can apply biomechanics to rehab. And you're talking about that understanding of how the hip and the ankle have an interplay in the closed kinetic chain and um, movement. And um, just that knowledge of potentially biomechanically how the hip is loaded. And it was also interesting that you said that you're not actually sure whether it's a good or a bad thing. You can have, um, you, know, you can have a, a problem potentially with deloading or unloading a joint long term with its with the cartilage health. Yeah. 
but potentially that's an, an adaptation in the short term if there's um if there's pain or dysfunction in the joints i found that really interesting yeah. and also just the, the thought of ten thousand steps a day versus 400 or so repetitions with a high impact activity it's worth thinking about not neglecting as Susanna was saying not neglecting the lower impact tasks mm. as well yeah yeah you can 100 percent um decrease an individual's aggravating factors in the short term to make life easier for them but then build make sure you're building them back up into those sorts of positions as time goes on um, because you are right yeah and we are looking at um at present is what our current work is on looking at um, long-term loading and underloading and overloading and what sort of effects that has on um, on cartilage health. Mm. As and well as muscle quality. As well as muscle quality, which is where Susanna's PhD comes into it. Yes, yes. <laughs> but, but the other thing that I find really, really interesting is the you're talking about that hip extension and you know how that how that changes um clinically that is something that i often do with people with hip pain is give them an exercise of just walking backwards um and particularly if they start getting hip pain uh during walking um just getting them to do a couple of you know walks backwards often sort of resets the hip um, as I like to say it. Um, and it, and it does make a difference to them walking forwards and how they walk forwards. Um, I also think that the walking backwards is nice because we don't often do it. Um, and it's actually quite hard. And particularly if you do have a bit of hip, knee or ankle pain, any sort of lower limb pain, as well as back pain. The other thing that it's really good for is challenging someone's balance. Um, so you're getting that, plus you're getting them up onto their toes and almost doing like an eccentric calf. So you're getting, yeah, so you're loading the ankle joint, you're loading the knee, you're loading the hip. Um, and we know that if you load appropriately, that's what helps with your joint health. So that's really interesting. Yeah, I love uh, walking back, especially for hip OA patients and even um um, later in the rehab phase for people that have really irritable lateral hip pain, greater trochanteric pain syndrome, walking, I love walking backwards as a rehab progression. It's sensational. A different central pattern, different loading of the tissues, the joints, and perhaps yeah. also um, have a different approach from the, the person in terms of if they've got any fear of movement or apprehension for loading as well. And it's one of the yeah. oldest tricks in the book has been, <laughs> it's not a new idea. No, I agree. It's definitely not a new idea. Mm. <clears throat> One of your lab studies that you've got published, Matt, talked about um, the biomechanics of men and women doing single mm -hmm. um, leg drop jumps and, and walking. So as examples, as you were saying before, of high and low impact tasks, and then you found some sex differences, so some differences between men and women. Can you tell us a bit about this study and you know, what you found and what it might mean yeah. if we think um, – particularly the sex differences as well. And maybe we can segue from there into some of the work you and the group are doing with women's sport. Yep, yeah, no problem. So um, this study really came off the back of the systematic review um, we did at the start. Um, and the, the, the main things that came out of the systematic review were most of the populations that are studied are pre-surgical. Um, so they may be a little bit later in that disease continuum. And the second thing is women are severely underrepresented in um, hip pain research in, in general, especially young hip pain research, but also specifically towards my PhD, the biomech space, which is really interesting because um, the individuals that present the epi data shows that the, the split between men and women who present for 
FAI surgery is half men, half women, but they're underrepresented in the research um, pool. So, um, uh, so my, my question that I always had in the back of my head is, you know, what effect does sex have on the, this sort of relationship between biomechanics and hip pain? You know, not everyone um, moves the same, not everyone is the same. So we started that off um, by literally having a look at, at men and women. Um, importantly, the, the, study, the study found that um, when comparing men and women at the hip and the knee, the differences that were observe, observed uh, were task-specific. So the differences that we observed during walking at the hip and the knee between the two groups were not the same as the differences we observed at the hip and knee um, during the single-leg drop-jump task. Um, interestingly, uh, at the ankle, it was joint-specific. So the differences between um, the men and women were the same regardless of whether or not they were walking or whether or not they were doing the, the um, single-leg drop-jump. Um, and, the, and this difference was the men used their ankle and calf more. They had a greater, um, they, they created, um, a, oh, I'm trying to, they created a greater moment and a greater impulse. So they were, they were, they were um, I'm trying to think of how to say this simply, they were making their calf do potentially more work um, and potentially maybe producing more power. Um, in this particular study, we didn't look at power, but we did further down the track. Um, this is important finding, as I like, was talking about earlier, is there's an inherent trade-off between the forces between the ankle and the hip. Because um, if you increase the forces of the ankle, there can be a relative decrease at the hip. Um, so, you know, what does this all mean? And there's kind of two things that come out of it, one from a research perspective and then one from a, a clinical perspective as well. Um, the important thing with this paper is it's not necessarily the differences that were observed that were the super important thing. It's the fact that the differences um, actually existed. Um, and this has implications for interventions and research, especially with regards to movement retraining, because at present, um, most of the studies that look at movement retraining um, intervention target impairments that are predominantly seen in male-only or male-dominated cohorts inside the research. So we don't actually know if these sorts of um, techniques are applicable to women because they may be presenting with different impairments and different movement patterns. Um, so in order to adequately develop, in order to, order to de develop adequate uh, assessment and treatment recommendations, um, you know, research into women, we found that research into women needs to increase and putting men and women together in the same cohort without exploring sex in that cohort um, should be strongly discouraged. Um, and importantly, from a clinical perspective, women with hip-related pain move differently. So therefore, if you're looking at movement retraining as a potential intervention um, or, or something that you're going to add to your care or something you add to your treatment, care needs to be taken in a thorough assessment conducted to establish which impairments you wish to target. And this is especially important for women as they may not necessarily present with common movement impairments, the impairments that we see um, in the literature. This is really um, 
bit of information overload there. No, Sorry. Is, it's no. my favourite paper from my PhD and I really enjoy talking about it. Is, is trailblazing what you've you've done in the sense that you've, as you said, women are underrepresented in that area of research and it's so important. And Suzanne is sitting here listening to this, um, knowing full well the impact that you know, musculoskeletal injuries can have on women playing high-impact sports because she's um, one of the physios for the uh, WAFL um, teams in Australia. So that's for overseas listeners, that's the Australian rules football um, and the women's division of that. Um, and you know, I thought you did a great job summarising simply what that means. That um, made a lot of sense. Um, Susanna, what are your thoughts on that as a clinician um, thinking about girls, particularly with hip or groin pain? Well, look, I, I spent, well, I have spent more than 10 years working in men's football. So men's AFL, Australian rules football. Um, doing my PhD, I don't, don't necessarily, I'm time poor. And I've been lucky enough to be able to work with some representative teams for the AFLW. Um, and it's interesting because I'm so used to watching how men move um, and now watching women, it is different. Um, and it's particularly different with the, the stop start and the change of direction. So what I find with men is um, when they're changing, they tend to lead more with their lower limbs almost. So you can already see their feet moving around and off they go. Um, with women, I see that they, they tend to sort of use the body first and then the legs come round. Um, and, and it might just be that it's a different sport also for a lot of the, the females coming through because AFLW is still fairly new. Um, we are now getting to that point where there are more women coming into the into football having a background in playing football from a really young age, but um, it's really still new in terms of what um, girls have brought up been playing so it's it is different um however i mean you do have netball um but netball is again a different sport because when you catch the ball you got to stop so it's a different biomechanics altogether and i know matt you'd have um lots of opinions maybe about the differences between the biomechanics of one sport compared to the other but um purely from a clinical point of view, working in the in the field and working with both men and women now, I do see a difference. And I think that does have implications um, for, you know, the, the rehab um, and even maybe uh, performance uh, enhancing and strength and conditioning stuff. I agree. It's really exciting that, <coughs> excuse me, the AFLW space and the sport participation rates increasing in women's and girls' football. Uh, I'm going to get this stat wrong and I'm probably going to be pulled up by some of my colleagues on it, but I think football participation before COVID, the three years before COVID, the football participation for community women's and girls' sport increased by 30 something percent in the space of two years. Maybe edit that out because I'm probably wrong. Um, and someone like Brooke is probably going to yell at me for getting that wrong, but um, the participation rates are great. And you are right, um, Susanna, like watching, isn't it, AFLW for the, uh, the listeners that may not be in Australia. Um, there's a lot of, uh, I suppose, cross-coders in the professional um, space at the minute. So a lot of... Um, individuals that played high-level basketball, high-level netball, high-level soccer, um, high-level cricket um, that have come across and played um, 
are now playing AFRW League. As time goes on, those grassroots levels will, will continue to come through and we won't see as many cross-coders, I think, as well, which will also be, be interesting because um, they would have had skill development from a potentially younger age. I've learned a new word, cross-coder. Or a new term. Cross so code. I only, I only, I only learnt it when I started uh, on the current project. One of the current projects I'm working on, cross coder. So yeah. So you're both raising really interesting points about not just measuring biomechanics in a laboratory and thinking what they might mean for long term joint health or for injury risk at the time, but also thinking about what you may be able to see with your naked eye as a physiotherapist or a sports um, scientist or any or any type of health professional or trainer. Um, or even fellow athlete, just watching someone move and seeing different movement strategies. I want to go back to the question I ask everyone on this podcast is, is actually more about clinical application, thinking mainly about younger practitioners and older, more experienced practitioners who are looking back and answering this question. And I always ask people, what's the most important foundational knowledge and skills for you working as a clinician? And this time I want to do it a bit differently because I've had some great answers about everything from empathy, communication, taking a thorough interview, clinical reasoning, um, and not forgetting your foundational knowledge. So they're some of the answers so far. But your, um, your special interest is biomechanics. And we've, you had a, you've given us a really good explanation about how you'd apply bi biomechanical findings from your research to cohorts of people. What about if people aren't sure how this stuff is measured in the lab Let's go back to your bread and butter. So what, what do we mean by biomechanics compared to just observation of movement? Now, how do you measure it with 3D markers and force plates and EMG? And, and, and how is what you do in a lab different from just what you can do with a dart fish or a mobile phone or, or just your yeah. eyes? Yeah. Um, so from a lab context, we measure, but there's different ways um, uh, to measure biomechanics all the way from you know 2D to 3D. Um, uh, we have a 3D lab space. Um, so the easiest way I explain this to people, and it does sometimes help with recruitment for studies, is I put up, especially if you're on Zoom or something, you have something, I have a photo of Gollum uh, from Lord of the Rings, or I have a picture uh, from Avatar. And uh, my, con my question to people is, have you seen... Um, have you seen you know, Lord of the Rings or have you seen Avatar? They go, yes. And I go, um, uh, so have you seen photos of how they did that with the people covered in the dots and all the infrared cameras? You're like, oh, yeah, that's cool. I'm like, that's what's in the basement of the building um, of what I work and that's what we're going to do uh, with you. So basically um, it's a big room. Um, there's no windows in it, which is incredibly frustrating because uh, UV light doesn't, work too well with this. Um, it's got 10 infrared cameras around it. Um, and those infrared cameras only pick up reflective surfaces. Um, so we, we basically cover people in these little reflective dots, um, the little 14 millimeter balls, um, and uh, put them in very specific areas on their body. And inside the floor, um, so the floor is hollowed out. Um, and in the floor there, we have a variety of different force plates that we get them to do tasks on as well. Um, so the camera only picks up reflective surfaces. Um, so we have to also be careful with staff in the lab if they've got runners on or things like that, because um, the cameras can pick that up as well. Um, and then we take that information. Um, so we take the camera data, looking at the dots and all the data from the, the force plates. Um, and we take that information and uh, it's 
it's basically then Newton's laws of physics. Um, and we use that to calculate our joint angles, um, which is kinematics, and our kinetic, what I refer to as kinetic variables. And, and kinetic is the study of uh, the study of forces acting on the body. So these are our, our moments. Um, these are things like power, work, um, and I'll just I'll stop at those ones for now because they're the common ones that you'll see. Um, it can get more complex as time go as you go further down the rabbit hole, but um, they're the they're the main ones that we we look at um, from our lab. To make the point that you can't measure those moments and powers um, with your eye, that that's something that's a function of putting together that three D movement analysis data and the force measurements from the floor from the force plates. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, there is some um, there is some work being done in the world at the minute using artificial intelligence to start artificial intelligence to see whether or not um, using a, a, a couple of two D cameras whether or not you can start to predict some forces based on certain things. Um, um, but at the minute, yeah, we use the the lab space um, itself. And then there's musculoskeletal modelling as well, and might have to chat to Perez from the we'll same research group. Yep. Yep, yep. Um, I'm going to shout out to Praz. Praz is currently uh, at Stanford University working um, with the guys that made that specific program that you're referring to there, Luke, for the next probably six months on some new advanced techniques. So it'll be exciting to maybe maybe in six months' time when he's back uh, hear about his exciting time at Stanford. So listeners, we're talking about Prasanna Shurathan, who's our colleague and he's a gun and um, biomechanist and looking at musculoskeletal modelings, which is sort of the next level when you take this data that comes from these 3D cameras and the force plate data and then uh, use very complicated mathematics to figure out um, estimates of joint and muscle loading. There we go. I've got another episode planned. Braz, if you're listening, you've dobbed in. You're coming on this to explain this stuff in simple terms. What I like, Matt, is you've, you've taken biomechanical measures and then you're relating it to people playing sport in a way that, so you're actually thinking about what it means in the clinical application. And that's something that's been the focus of the group there for yourself and Susanna and Kay you've mentioned and um, and Tanya and Praz and everyone else we've been mentioning here, part of the, um, the LASM team. Um, so what's the, um, before we talk about the, I wanted to finish off asking you about the social side of what's it like <laughs> being a part of the LASM team because you, you guys do have a bit of fun together and you've got a great um, culture. Um, what other, um, and this question for you as well, Susanna, what else is going on in your team? It's not just biomechanics. There's lots of yep. research on many different things. Tell us about it. Before you so, go to that, uh, yeah. hey, before you go to that, can, can we do the second part of that question? Because I'd be really interested in terms of clinically. So how do you or how would you suggest a clinician go about looking at some biomechanical assessment um, tasks, etc., and it, within the clinic, like what we what would be your best sort of go tos? So there are um, there have been they've stopped making them, which is a little bit um, frustrating. But you can still get them, um, and you can also download some free software. So I'm talking about a Wii balance board. Um, you can actually download some free software packages to look at balance and things um, using a Wii balance board as well. If you want to if you want to go down path. Um, Things that I like to use in a clinic. Um, um, so Canova is a is a um, program that you can download. 
Um, when I was still at the clinic, I used Ubersense. I actually think Ubersense has been bought by another company and its name has changed. I can find that out and let Luke know and he can attach it to this. But um, they're small programs that allow you to record movement. And yes, they're, they're, you know, the reliability may not, uh, is, may not be as good as a 3D motion capture system, but it can be a good way um, to record a participant, say doing a, say doing a drop jump or something like that, and they're falling into some form of, say, dynamic valgus angle, they're dropping into internal rotation, they're dropping their hip getting them to do that a few times and you can bring it up to them and show um, your participant, sorry, I'm pretending I'm playing with an iPad in my hand, um, show, your, show your patient and you can get some basic angles from that as well. Um, so the, the key things that I um, uh, look at um, at the clinic, uh, walking, drop landings, so double leg and single leg. Um, if If... Obviously, you've got to pick your patient, you know, if they are running, running as well, but obviously not everyone can run the first time they come into the clinic because that's probably why they're there. Um, they were the three that I really looked at from a hip perspective um, as well. Um, and, you, yeah, I'll stop there. Very good. Thank you. All good. I've actually forgotten, Luke, your – oh, the other research, yes. So there's a few things going on. Um, this particular um, – the fourth project that I worked on for my PhD is still going. Um, so we've just finished data collection on our two-year follow-up, which because of COVID, unfortunately, became three-year follow-up for some people um, on that. And that project and cohort is actually going to continue for five years. And then we've just also recently gained ethical approval to continue it all the way through to 10 years. So we're going to keep tracking these individuals for a long period of time. Um, uh, the other ones, I suppose, that um, I work on uh, is the um, Prep to Play um, Injury and Women's Football Project. So that particular project is a large-scale implementation trial um, facilitating the use of the Prep to Play um, program uh, at community, uh, community women's and girls sports. So there are nearly 3,000 participants, 300 volunteers, 60 physiotherapists that implement this, and there's about... 15 people at management that manage it at the uni. Um, so we're in our final year of that at the minute, and then we'll, we'll look at all the data next year and get that out. Um, and one of the other studies that's going on at the minute is um, run by Adam Kovner, um, who is looking at um, individuals that have had an ACL reconstruction and may be at risk of getting early, osteo early knee osteoarthritis uh, and implementing a strengthening program um, for that particular cohort, that high-risk cohort, and, and following them again. Um, there are three main ones. There are a lot more. Susanna, do you want to talk about any more? No, I, I think you've, you've covered it. Um, I think the main thing is is maybe just give them a plug in terms of you might Absolutely. have some, some listeners who would like to get involved Um I know from my point of view, I mean, I enjoyed the clinical side of things, but um, really enjoyed the jump uh, into doing some, you know, uh, casual research assistant work. So what's your sort of best tips if someone's thinking, oh, actually, I wouldn't mind looking at maybe biomechanics or just getting into some research myself. Um, what's the best way of doing that other than just being a participant 
and getting True. Tanya Pizzari to to get you in with the big boss. Get on my case, yeah. Um, so a couple of things. So um, plug plug for the Injury and Women's Football Project at the minute. We have um, there are uh, fifty physiotherapy students at the minute that are that are helping us with the project um, with some data collection, um, and you reimburse your time with that. And we are always looking for more people to help us out with that. Um, so if you're interested in doing that, um, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to keep, um, we're trying to get students to try and help us out because we have clinicians working on another section of the project and then um, some data people working on another section of the project. Um, by all means, reach out if people want to be involved. And if um, you want to get involved in research and something um, interests you, um, the best thing to do to start with is reach out. You've got to throw your hat in the ring at some point. Um, you've, you know, um, if you're into hips and knees, AFLW uh, and tendon stuff, you know, they're the main areas that, that lay some work in. Um, uh, reach out. We're always looking to, um, you know, help put people on in research assistant positions and research officer positions. And um, you, there are jobs that pop up. Um, from time to time, there will be some that pop up in the next month or so from Mason for research officer positions. Um, but the first thing is you've got to take that big leap and you've just got to throw your hat in the ring. It's a really good question from Susanna because it's a question that we get, both that Susanna and I get a lot. How do you actually, from clinicians, sometimes from students, how do you actually get into research for the first time? I think sometimes people are waiting for a job to be advertised or someone to come and do what happened to you, Matt, and say, yeah, you've got a meeting tomorrow, don't be late. Um, yeah. that's, that's rare. Um, often it is just knocking on a door and showing an interest in being involved. And especially if you're a student and you've trained and you've got recent skills in data collection, in systematic reviewing and volunteering your services to be one of the people on a systematic review, for example, can be your foot in the door. I know that was the case for Susanna on multiple papers where she helped out and got involved and eventually became a research assistant, now doing a PhD. So it's a really good point to bring up for people who are listening to this who yeah. probably have that question themselves. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, can, it can be daunting. It can be daunting writing that email. It can be daunting knocking on that door at, at the university you're working. But, um, yeah. Just, just put yourself out there. Uh, we all are. We all are friendly people. We're lovely. Um, I like to think we're all friendly people and lovely. Um, mm. All you and, need to um, say is who you are, your your interests, and your skills, yeah. and just express interest. It's not a. Yeah. It's really just putting yourself out there, as you said, and um, it's a really good bit of advice. I think the other thing is, and I think you're absolutely right where you started, Matt, which is, you know, for those that aren't in Melbourne, which is where uh, LASM is or um, La Trobe University um, presides, Luke is at Monash University, so there's plenty of universities, but starting off by volunteering as a participant um, can be really, really helpful. Number one, you know, you're helping them out. It, it is uh, quite a hard task getting participants um, and putting them through the process. But then you're able to actually see the process and you're able to meet people face to face. So researchers themselves, um, and you can create some really nice contacts and some really nice leads just from from a, a session as being a participant. So um, yeah, for anyone that's interested in research, 
Please do. There's always many, many studies um, that need volunteers. Um, and like you said, Matt, some of the, the studies you, you can get um, vouchers or, you know, some prizes for just going into them. So it's, it's definitely well worth it. And we have, so we have three current um, research officers at Laysan. Um They put their hand up to be a controller in the study and they said to the researchers, hey, look, I'm super interested in research. Now, how do I get involved? How do I get involved? Um, and now those three individuals are working uh, on projects in the tank. Um, yeah, they just, they were physio students at the time. They're like, I really love this. I like science. Usually the conversation, usually at that particular time was unfortunately we don't have any spots at the minute, but by all means, keep in touch. You know, reach out every now and then. They reached out. They're, you know, they're, they're working on the projects um, at the minute with 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 jobs. So um, yeah, you've yeah, it's daunting, but you just gotta yeah put yourself put yourself out there. Mm. Yeah, great tips. Uh, um, what about the what's it like working at Lazem and what sort of social events do you do? I think the reason I'm asking this is because it's actually really important for particularly evident during COVID when we were a lot of people, not a lot of knowledge workers had to go and work at home. And wasn't that mm -hmm. fun if you had kids? And yep. it's isolating and it's the case for a lot of people. Um, so then you get to really see the value of a, a social group. I know you guys kept together regularly with, um, with Zoom and socially on Zoom as well as your meetings. Um, so what's it like being a part of the team there? What's some, perhaps some, um, some more lighthearted, funny banter as well. points. Yeah. Um, so it's, it is a it is a genuinely sensational place to work in and I feel so lucky that I get to get up every day uh, and walk into that building um, uh, it's you know it's a bit stereotypical but it is an extended family um, for me and the the center itself is very um, pro on family like we're all in this together and it's not just the team members all in this together it's partners and the kids. Um, so we celebrate people's wins, but it's also important um, not to commiserate is probably not the right word, but also reflect um, uh, reflect when things don't go to plan because academia in itself, you know, always getting feedback, always putting grants in, you know, you're getting knocked back. It's important to also reflect and have people's back on there. And I've been giving this question some thought, you know, what makes Laysan Laysan? And I think there's probably two main things. Um, one of which is if one succeeds, we all succeed. Um, and that's really a, I suppose, a mantra that filters through the centre. Um, and, and and I don't mean this just to be, to say, an altruistic-based statement, but um, I think, you know, the team puts other individuals' success before their own. To see people just drop their work to help help someone who's got a grant during a week and you've got 15 people playing second fiddle to an individual to help them get through and reading this or doing this or checking these numbers or checking a budget. Um, that's that's what makes Laysan, uh, that's what makes Laysan a, a great place to work. Um, because you know, it comes back around when it's your turn and you're under the pump and you're trying to meet a deadline, bang, there's 10, 15 people knocking at your door like, what do you want me to do? What do you need me to do to help? I'll get you this. And it could be as simple as getting your lunch one day when you're flat stick. Um, or it could be checking checking your work, checking your budgets, checking anything. Um, you know, and my one of my favourite stories to tell is I've 
everyone helps everyone. I have had Professor Kay Crosley and Professor Jill Cook putting Viacom markers on a participant getting ready for data collection. Um, like, like there may be some, some professors out there that, that wouldn't do that, um, but everyone pitches in. It's real leadership, isn't it? So you're celebrating those wins with each other and supporting one another. And there's also that process of reflection, which is so important. That's just come up there. And of course, teamwork. So, you know, that's a, it's a really great answer to that question. And talking about being flat out, you know, we're really grateful for your time because you're flat out at the moment, as you probably always oh, are good. as a researcher writing another, another grant. So, you know, we really value having you on here. It's going to, I was going to do it in two parts and this has become one big episode because we've been having a good old chat and that's fine. So I normally do about 20, 30 minutes. We've gone a bit longer and that's fine because we've covered some really important ground. Um, I was thinking um, in terms of some fun, when I mentioned funny banter before, yeah. last time I yeah. hung out with the, the LASM team was at the Sports Medicine Australia conference in, in was it 2019 yeah. in Queensland yeah. at a conference where a young Matt King got very frustrated. The bar closed early and um, – <laughs> And then had a few, frustration. No, he wasn't frustrated. He was very happy. And he and he just said, Oh no, I've got to let me have a chat. And he went up there and before we knew it, the bar was open again. And it went too late. How'd you do that? What is no, your just, <laughs> did you present uh, a financial argument, a cost benefit analysis of some sort? Or there was, there was some presentation. Uh, or trust me, I never get anything from a smile. Um, uh, it was it was just, you know, the the social event, because no one was at the bar because everyone was at the social event for SMA. The social event had obviously finished. And, like, we were a couple of the first people, like, at the bar and they were cleaning up and just highlighted that there may be a large group of individuals coming to enjoy a drink. Um, and that was good. It was good. That, that came up a couple of weeks ago as well, that story, from <laughs> someone else. You made them some money, but the the bar staff didn't look like they didn't look too impressed when they opened it back up again. But it was very funny. That's good. That's good. They were were fine. They were fine. That's good. And you actually won an award at that conference, which has been forgotten. Everyone just remembers when you reopened the bar. So yeah, yeah, I did. That was a it was a good. good. As I was thinking on the on the paper we were talking about um, earlier, the sex based um, biomet comparison paper. Yeah, really important. a trailblazing paper that you did and then you won an award for it, but we'll just remember when you reopened the bar. <laughs> Thanks. Well, anything else? Thanks. I unfortunately won't be at SMA this year, uh, unfortunately, so someone else is going to probably have to facilitate that bar opening. Um, Someone's got to fill your shoes and carry on yep. your legacy and your work. Well, anything else that you want to add, Susanna and Matt, no. to this interesting conversation? I just want to say thanks for having me. It's been, it's been great um, if I was, you know, to leave on a point is just, if you ever want to, just reach out, reach out, by all means. Mm. Don't be shy. Don't, mm. it's, you don't have to do a big marketing exercise and, and, and be nervous in any way. Just know that if, you're, if you've trained in the last, if you finish your, your training in the last 10 or 15 years, you have very marketable research skills. You know, you know how to do um, you at least systematic reviewing. You've probably been involved in some data collection. You can be a participant. You can knock on some doors and get involved in research. It doesn't have to be an advertised position. So it was a very good point that you both brought up. All right then. Well, awesome listeners. Um, if you made it this far, 
you must be interested and you must have found some of this interesting. So please share, find the little three dots, press the share button, and that really helps us get these podcast episodes out to people. There's stacks of podcasts. You probably don't even know about it. I find new podcasts every day. And I think, how come I have never seen this before? And it's probably because no one's ever shared it with me. So you can really do us a favor and, and do that. And when you do share it, tag us in at Periton Physio. You can also find Matt on the Larsen website. What is the, the web, best website for you, Matt, to look you up? Uh, for information, the probably best one is, is to go through Twitter. Um, so it's Latrobe at Latrobe SEM. Uh, and then my Twitter handle is Matt King underscore physio. Excellent. Now it looks well, like you're out of time because someone's arrived at the door. So we'll leave it there. <laughs> but thanks very much to you, Susanna, and to Matt for the podcast chat today. Thanks for coming on. Really appreciate awesome. it. And I hope to do it again. Thank you very much. Thank you. So until next time, this is Matt, Luke, and Susanna wishing you all the very best with your studying, professional development, and lifelong learning. <laughs>